There is no shortage of monsters to haunt our dreams, like the creature from the Black Lagoon, deadly aliens from outer space, giant ants, but the most fiendish, the most fascinating, the most terrifying creature of all may be waiting for you right in your own home. Years ago, people used to believe a cat was the devil in disguise. I'm beginning to think they were right. When will they pounce? Hello and welcome to A Part of Our Scaritage, a new podcast from Megaphonic FM that looks at Canadian horror movies. Every episode of this show is going to contain spoilers. I'm telling you now, so you have time to watch all those Scanners and Prom Night sequels before we get to them on the program. This time we're looking at The Uncanny, the 1977 anthology horror about killer house cats starring Peter Cushing, Ray Milland, and you guessed it, Donald Pleasance. Now, I can already hear some of you in the back saying that this sounds like a British movie, and you're half right. But each and every movie featured on a part of our scaredage will be subject to our CanCon checklist, where we make the case for why the film qualifies as Canadian. And, at the end of each episode, myself and my co-host will present a scaredage moment, highlighting a particularly Canadian aspect of each film featured on the program. As always, I am your host, Adam Clark, and I am, as always, joined by... Sarah Chamberlain. There we go. <laughs> I thought you were going to say my name. No. <laughs> I'll get used to this one day. Today we are looking at a kitty cat movie, the 1977 horror film, The Uncanny. So the first thing we have is a wraparound segment where Peter Cushing plays a writer convinced that human beings are being manipulated by our true master, the house cat. He presents his findings to a publisher played by Ray Milland who expresses skepticism for Cushing's theory. As Cushing tells the three stories that make up today's movie, he's watched by Milan's fluffy cat, Sugar. In the conclusion of those wraparound segments, Ray Milan is convinced by his cat, Sugar, to burn Cushing's manuscript. And Cushing, who's followed by cats outside as he makes his way home, is pushed down a flight of stairs by a bunch of fluffy cats who are clearly being thrown by PAs on the set. The world is spared from ever knowing the truth. So that's kind of our first segment. That's the the one that bookends the entire movie. And Sarah, what did you make of that story? <laughs> the Cushing Milan stuff. Oh, and also Sugar. Also Sugar. Okay, well, first, I think I might have to stop you because you said we start with this. But what we actually start with is that unbelievable opening sequence. <laughs> <laughs> the title sequence. <laughs> With those hand-painted cats that are like, it's like a cat's eye, and then it's zooming out, and all of a sudden it goes, and there's like this cat with these big red fangs staring into the camera. A giant cat head with fangs that makes up the title card, so it says the uncanny, with a big fanged cat on it. It goes through like multiple cats while it's doing the names, but my absolute favorite one, this leering cat's face, when uh, John Vernon's name is up on the screen. If you see it again, it just, it cracked me up so hard. <laughs> I was in tears. I don't know what it was. 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure where those cat paintings came from, aside from perhaps a yard sale that was very close to the production. I wish I knew because they're very like, yeah, they're very Warhol-esque cats. <laughs> it's perfect. The, and the music is so over the top to complement these like scary stories to tell in the dark paintings of cats. done by Wilfred Josephs, who I know best because he did some of the music for a TV show called The Prisoner, which was similarly kind of avant-garde and weird sounding. I just got the feeling from those cat images right away with that music. I really just instantly got the, the feeling that this director or the writer just hated cats they were just like oh look at how evil they are look at them <laughs> it makes a hard sell that cats are scary and and that leads into the uh the wraparound segment because i feel like peter cushing's character is totally just a self-insert for whoever wrote this story as this crazed cat hating <laughs> conspiracy theorist <laughs> that's just them <laughs> we let them prowl about just as they please hardly noticing them all the time they're watching us spying on us making sure that we behave as far as conspiracies go how would you rank the idea that cats are our true masters over say lizard people or aliens regularly abducting us or aliens working in conjunction with lizard people as part of the new world order i definitely think that this guy ranks it right up there because there's a part where he says well, my other novels on on the UFOs and on the pyramids were total hits. Everyone believed them. So <laughs> this guy literally went alien book, alien book, cat book. <laughs> Starring Peter Cushing as Alex Jones. <laughs> Perfect casting. As a matter of fact, I'm not convinced that the public is ready for the story but yet. You said that about my book on flying saucers. Now everyone believes it. And my theory regarding the pyramids. So my takeaway from this movie is he thinks they're aliens. He thinks cats are just aliens in disguise. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that would tie them to the pyramids, of course. Oh, exactly. I assume his pyramid book was about aliens building the pyramids. What else could it be? I want to know when Wilbur came to the conclusion, was it immediate? All of a sudden he was just like, no way. Cats are the actual overlords. Or was this an ongoing thing? Like while he was writing his alien books, he was already thinking this, you know? It was, it was in his head. Yeah, the Wilbur character played by Peter Cushing is really interesting, and we don't get to explore that because of like the nature of uh, the segments. But it's interesting because you mentioned that line where he talks about how his UFO books and his and his pyramid book they're both huge successes, and it makes me wonder. It's like was he a cynical writer doing a cash grab for? the market of conspiracy theories and then stumbled on a real one. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Or was he just a local crackpot? <laughs> well, the scene where he's walking to uh, his publisher's house and that guy comes up to ask him for a, for a light, for a smoke, and he literally turns and screams at the top of his lungs, definitely <laughs> goes the crackpot route a little bit more. <laughs> Oh man! And uh, as I as I mentioned before, uh, both of these uh, actors that that we have here—they're Peter Cushing and Ray Milland, who are both great. Um, 
I I really love both of them, and I think they're really fun here. Milan doesn't really have anything much to do aside from sit in a chair and scowl, but he's very good at that. He's really good at it. I really enjoyed these segments, too. I think they just work so well off of each other. And that cat, best actor in the movie. I mean, best cat <laughs> actor. The rest sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Sugar definitely was the best cat actor. I totally agree. They got a lot of mileage out of uh, sinister close-ups on a fluffy white cat. <laughs> Like, like Sugar looked like the mascot for cat food. It like was Sugar was so adorable, and yet they shoot Sugar through like a flaming fireplace <laughs> to try and make Sugar look super menacing. It does not work. That's the best. And uh, yeah, isn't isn't the cat they use on the Cottonelle commercials like the same cat that Sugar is? Just that flat faced, white, fluffy cat look. Uh, and Sugar has that uh, slightly turned up nose and like pudgy mouth, so it has a, a naturally kind of like sour facial expression. <laughs> It's like they found a perfect cat double for Ray Milan. <laughs> exactly. They they go perfectly together. I guess, is it safe to say that the wraparound segments at the very least is about a man who picks a fight with a cat and loses? <laughs> exactly. Our first segment is titled London 1912. The elderly and wealthy Miss Malkin has updated her will. Her riches will no longer be going to her nephew Michael and will instead be given to her dozens of cats. Janet, who works as Malkin's maid, but is dating Michael, steals one of two copies of the updated will, and Michael destroys this copy, but Malkin has one remaining version of her new will locked away in a safe by her bed. Janet tries to destroy that copy too, but is caught by Malkin. Malkin tries to call the police, but is smothered to death by Janet. Malkin's cats, deprived of their natural source of temptations, flip out and attack Janet. This marks the appearance of a cat paw puppet, which serves as a leitmotif of sorts in the uncanny. A scratched and bloody Janet runs out of the bedroom, but the cats trap her in the pantry with nothing to eat but bread and, later, cat food. Days pass, and Janet tries to sneak back into Miss Malkin's room to destroy that copy of the will. She's horrified to discover that the cats have picked Miss Malkin clean. Still hungry, the cats turn Janet into Meow Mix. And that's segment one. Oh man, this segment is so good. <laughs> the movie had us at the paintings. Yeah, it definitely did. It gets your attention with Peter Cushing going, listen, UFOs, pyramids, it's all part of a larger puzzle involving cats. Like, you can picture him in his drafty, dingy, smelly apartment with a corkboard that has red string aligning to pictures of gray, almond-eyed aliens, to the Egyptians, to a picture of a tabby cat. <laughs> and that's at the peak of that, like, you know, pyramid on his board there. It's, it's right there. That's the leader of it all. <laughs> this segment, like, this segment is super fun, and it is perhaps the most i think uh evident that this was a british co-production like it was shot in montreal and co-produced by a uh, producer in canada but this is even though the film is populated by british actors this is the most british of segments not just because it's set in london i feel like it couldn't be set anywhere else you've got a snooty wealthy old woman her millions of cats the maid that she constantly berates uh, and <laughs> Yeah, she totally treats her like crap. And then you've got the maid conspiring with her lover to uh, to get the money. Her lover, who is actually the wealthy Harris's nephew. That's right. Oh, man. And the whole thing feels like 
a like it, 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 I don't know. It, there's something so kind of enjoyably stuffy, and I think self consciously stuffy about all of it, uh, right down to being a period per, period piece. That uh, it was entertaining, and it made the first appearance of the cat pop puppet. The cat pop. I will say that Joan Greenwood, as the uh, the wealthy woman, Miss Malkin, she is so good in this role. Like, she just nose upturned. Everything she says is so theatrical. Like, I love her. And all she does is sit in a bed with her nightgown on the entire time. She doesn't do anything else. It's all just her presentation. <laughs> this movie is filled with a lot of really good actors delivering really funny performances. Like, they're they're very into what this movie is putting down. <laughs> My absolute favorite line. And if you could somehow get this... <laughs> put it in i'd be so happy joan greenwood when she finds out that the maid is stealing the will for, she wakes up and sees her stealing the will out of her safe she yells uh you're a wicked girl janet a wicked wicked girl who deserves to go to hell <laughs> you're a wicked girl janet a wicked wicked girl who deserves to go to hell <laughs> and she just instantly turns so witch-like in that scene and i'm like oh man this lady she has so few lines but she really just nails it because <laughs> i watched this um again after we watched it when we watched it i thought it was good but watching it again i was like okay this is really good like i can see that these actors are super into all these what's going on here you know each each segment is so distinct from the other it's really good what is really surprising about this one because it it's the most old-fashioned not just in terms of the uh, the date that it's set in but the kind of horror story that is you know involving a wealthy woman's will um it it feels it, it feels so old-fashioned and that's why i think the shock of seeing a really good dummy gore effect when the maid peeks in on Mrs. Malkin and just sees her rotted out, torn apart carrion, her just corpse that's been ripped to shreds by all of her cats. And it looks surprisingly good. Like it's yeah. really good compared to, I'd say, that's the peak level of gore in this movie. This is an excellent effect. And it's like genuinely like a bit gross. Like there's a lot of meat that's hanging off of what what's left of her. It's so nasty looking. Even Janet at the end when they show her corpse, it's brief, but that looks pretty good too. Even though it's like literally the same day she dies, when they come in and find it, she looks like she's been mummified. It still <laughs> looks pretty good though. Janet the maid's fate is pretty rough. That's the last thing that I was expecting would be like really good gore effects for this movie from 1977 that is clearly going for more of a restrained amicus hammer vibe like i know that they like hammer at least was known for being a bit more extravagant but you look at it now and it's quite old-fashioned and i guess i wasn't expecting an effect this gruesome in the movie even though it's like it's the late 70s yeah because for most of the rest of it they use um quite theatrical you know bright red blood just in big globs <laughs> hanging off of things <laughs> yeah oh but this looks fantastic and it, it's it's a segment that's like it's fun it's breezy and it made me laugh and i that's that's something that i don't know i, I find as a recurring thing is that like this is an extremely fun tongue-in-cheek movie and i think it realizes exactly what it sets out to do can we talk about her getting locked in that closet <laughs> <laughs> yes so after she gets attacked by these cats which is a great like three stooges sequence where she's trying to get that will and that cat paw hand keeps coming out and scratching her hand right before she can <laughs> grab it 
Oh, and this comes after she she kills Miss Malkin and after she suffocates her with a pillow and then she's like sitting on the bed like, oh, oh, I can't believe I did that. And then all of a sudden Miss Malkin sits up Frankenstein monster style to do one last scare before she actually dies. Mrs. Malkin was the Michael Myers of her time. But her locking herself in that closet. So she gets in there and cats are outside. One, the cats are outside the door because you're in the room with their food, okay? If I even <laughs> went near the drawer where my cat's food was, he'd be around my ankles in a second. So what, what does she think? They're not stalking her. They just think she's getting the food. <laughs> a maid can be trapped by cats, but at no point does she think of taking out a broom, which would scare her. Any cat. I know we're probably in a pre-vacuum age in 1912, so she doesn't have that option. On rewatch, I noticed that there was a huge wash basin up on the wall, a big tin wash basin, and there were spoons and everything in that room. I was like, okay, I know cats. If you grabbed that wash basin and ran out banging it with that spoon, they would scatter like dust in the wind. Not one cat (laughs) would dare come near you with a big (laughs) clanging wash basin. <laughs> but instead, she waits until she's reduced to eating cat food out of a jar, which is my probably my favorite scene because she starts with finding a big bin labeled bread that has loaves of bread in it that she eats, which is, mm-hmm. you know, bread's pretty filling. I think that could keep you for a while. Like, don't scarf it down in five minutes, you know, try to ration it if you're stuck in here. She's got bread. She has a block of cheese. She's eaten both those things. And then, you know, a day or two passes. I don't know how long it is. think her boyfriend would come looking for her if it was a month or something. Seems like it's a couple days. Yeah. She decides, okay, this is it. Like, I'm starving after these couple days. I'm going to eat this cat food. (laughs) She takes out the cat food jar, takes a big old spoonful of it, which is clearly just chili now. (laughs) Completely changed its (laughs) texture and look. (laughs) and then she pulls out a piece of bread and spreads it on it instead of just eating the damn bread she uses it to spread the cat food on well you know she's she's civilized you have to have a side with a meat dish your side is bread it's so infuriating i would eat dust before i you know like why is this she's like oh i could finish this bread but then what would i spread my cat food on (laughs) (laughs) oh god it's perfect (laughs) and then like a day later she's like oh i'm hungry again now i'll face the cats (laughs) and also i'm surprised she didn't think of you know where the cats are there she's been locked away from the cats for some time they eventually run out of old woman meat yep she never thinks to distract them with food with the cat food that she instead (laughs) eats (laughs) Now, one thing that I really like about her character is that she has at least two opportunities where she can be rescued and she thwarts her own rescue because she's greedy. And I think that's a really interesting thing where it's like she doesn't give up on that plot device. Like it seems because the money's not even going to her. It's going to her lover, who's the woman's nephew. But she's so determined that he get this money so she can benefit from it. That she, when the milkman comes and she's locked in that room, she's about to call out to him. And then she gets this flashback of him being like, we could be married and rich. And then she decides to not call out for help. 
So she's like, in the end, she causes her own demise. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> After the milkman thing, she leaves and, and none of the cats are around. And she's like all cut up and, you know, sick from eating cat food and stuff. And she sees the phone and she's about to call for help. But another, they do the flashback again. And he's like, we could be rich. And then she's like, oh, and she goes upstairs to get the will. And then like, she ends up, you know, that's her demise. She ends up dying. <laughs> <laughs> this whole problem could have been solved if she only had a can with some change in it. <laughs> in our second segment, titled Quebec Province 1975, Lucy, an orphan girl whose only friend is a cat named Wellington, is taken in by her aunt. Her aunt insists that Lucy give Wellington up while Lucy's cousin Angela terrorizes the poor orphan girl. Fortunately, Lucy has a big book of witchcraft, which she uses to shrink Angela to the size of a mouse. Wellington, as the song goes, comes back and squashes the pint-sized Angela. <laughs> the end. This segment is so fun and out of place. <laughs> the first and third segment are totally grounded in reality, but with just this, like, wink at the audience that the cat was up to something. Yeah, it's a heightened reality, but it's still, like, not supernatural. Exactly. And the second one totally seems like it's going that route all the way up until the third act. Like, it's just, like, the, the Angela character is so mean. Like, I hate her, this little girl. She's just the most, like, stereotypical. She's got that annoying voice that I think... We've, we decided that both of the young girls were voiced by, were dubbed over by adults. <laughs> their voices are so off. <laughs> this is your room. It used to be your mother's. What do you think of it, Wellington? Wellington says he likes it. Cats can't talk. Yes, they can, but it takes a long time before you can understand them. Now I'll show you my room. It's bigger than yours. That's because I belong here. I have to unpack. <sighs> Like they definitely have women trying to do little girls' voices over top of their move, their mouth movements. <laughs> <laughs> but she's just such an awful character, and you just think that the cat, like she's going to get her comeuppance, the cat's going to trip her or something. And the fact that it ends with this witchcraft, black magic, crazy thing, a Goosebumps episode is so much fun. <laughs> it just takes an absolute left turn where a big book of witchcraft is brought out, and Angela shrinks down in. Not the greatest effect. <laughs> it's implied that Lucy's mom was totally a witch. Because when Lucy opens her luggage, the, the aunt's like, what are these books? And she's like, witchcraft? Tarot? Like, tarot readings are the most like, evil witchy thing ever. Same thing. And she's like, we're going to have to burn these books. And, and she's like, no, it's all that I have of my mother and stuff. So it, her mother was so into this. And then when she has that one final book after her aunt does burn the other books... It has this necklace in it. And, and Lucy's like, let's give this a try. So she's never dabbled in this ever before. But her mother was so powerful that she's just able to do this hardcore black magic ritual the first try. Mm -hmm. And there's something kind of great that potentially this book of witchcraft has such easy to follow instructions that they can be done conveniently by an adolescent girl. Wellington is definitely part of that magic, I'm sure, because he's a black cat. So she inherited that cat from her mother, you know. Yes, that's the mother's familiar or something. <laughs> but I have to say, like, even though the shrinking effects involve some not so great blue screening, I will say that I love the shots of the actress playing Angela running around these oversized props. 
They're amazing. I love those props. Yeah, they're really detailed. And they sell you on, I want to say this is the silliest part of the movie, but Sarah, this is a deeply silly movie. (laughs) It's hard to pinpoint the one thing that is sillier than the rest. I agree. (laughs) But the shots of Angela fighting a house cat with a pencil. Ordinarily, I flinch at even the slightest kitty cat violence. Yep. <laughs> but this was so outstand, outstandingly weird that I, I just, and, and so kind of like, uh, it was such a mixture of good and bad effects. Because like I said, the real props and the shooting for uh, Angela's diminished size when it's just her are great. Whenever they have to incorporate the cat, it's either bad blue screen work or a second cat paw puppet. A super big giant cat paw puppet because yes. it's like the real girl Angela is like trying to. So you can assume, you know, she's human sized. I can't imagine how big that cat paw must have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part is that she's fitting off against this gigantic, like, I, I don't want to say life size, but like uh, this, this thing that, that is almost as big as the actress comes swiping at her. Like this would be, why isn't there at Universal Studios an uncanny exhibit where they replace the jaw shark jumping out with that cat's paw coming through a living room? The props in this scene are, are honey, I shrunk the kids quality. Like yeah. I love the big mouse trap with that big styrofoam cheese or whatever it is. (laughs) It's so cool and she gets stuck in it with her her foot gets stuck and she has to use the big pencil to like get it open. It's like a Tom and Jerry skin. All it needs is that trademark Tom scream. (laughs) I just assume it's like, oh, this will end with the cat delivering what's left of Angela's body to her mother the way a cat would deliver a mouse to you. No. It's Lucy who kills her. I thought the cat would just eat her. Like, home and it'd be some bad effect and the cat just gobbles her up or something. She's like, oh, good Wellington. But Lucy murders her. (laughs) Just because she's tiny doesn't make it any less of a murder. (laughs) And it's just her big shoe comes crushing down and you just hear the crunch underneath. (laughs) And then, like, she, her mom comes in and she's like, oh, Wellington, you spilled paint again. Scoop, scoops up her daughter's remains. <laughs> <laughs> it's so evil. Like, it gets so dark because Lucy's actually a very sympathetic character right up until the end where she just, the cousin is, I hate her. But, like, I didn't, I mean, killing her seems a little extreme. <laughs> I think this movie's trying to evoke Tales from the Crypt. And even even that, and specifically like the 1972 British Tales from the Crypt that came out. When she's there just yelling like, you haven't got any mummy. <laughs> like, this girl just lost her her parents like two days ago in a plane crash. And that's how you're acting like that's like devil level evil. <laughs> you're so mean. <laughs> when she's chasing her with that big remote control plane. <laughs> Both her parents died in a plane crash, so she's chasing her around with this unbelievably well-controlled remote control plane that, like, our, like modern-day drones can't even rival in their response levels. <laughs> and she's chasing her around the yard with it, just yelling, you haven't got a mummy! <laughs> she's, like, mustache-twirling evil. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm glad she got stepped on. If you expect me to publish this book as anything other than fantasy, you'll have to do better than that. All the proof you ask for is here. Look, 
Do you remember the case of Valentine Diaz? Difficult to forget it. It was the cat that did it. The cat. And that brings us to the final segment, Hollywood, 1936. This story concerns Hammy actor Valentine Death, that's D-E apostrophe A-T-H, played by Donald Pleasance, an actor who is no stranger to Ham. On the set of his new horror movie, Death, uh, swaps out a prop pendulum blade with a real one so that it guts his co-star slash wife. This makes room for the part to be recast, and the damsel in distress will now be played by Death's mistress, Adina. Following his wife's death, Death tries to get rid of her cat by means of putting food in a bear trap, chasing the cat with a net, and poisoning the cat's milk. The savvy cat notices that next to the saucer of milk is a bottle clearly labeled poison. The cat meows revenge, and Adina is soon killed by the many real death traps used on the film set. Death, on the other hand, learns the true meaning of the phrase, cat's got your tongue. In his final moments. This might be my favorite segment. Oh, I don't doubt that in the slightest, Adam. <laughs> that does not shock me. It's got the greatest bad boy to ever grace horror cinema, Donald Pleasance. Your husband. <laughs> Husbando. Husband Donald. Named Valentine Death. <laughs> but also, like, this, it's so it's so interesting to me that, like, usually if a, if a horror anthology has a lighter segment and to me this is the most overtly comedic one in the whole movie you would put that earlier but i also think it's the strongest segment instead of like leaving the audience on a gut punch like say the horrible corpse like that great makeup effect in the first segment uh or something a bit more outlandish and supernatural like in the second segment so no 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 we end on a goof yeah you know what i actually i like that though i feel like the segments are well placed in this one for sure I agree. Yeah, um, I think the middle one could have been nothing but a middle one. You cannot start the movie with that second segment. I'd be like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and ending it, I feel like, if anything, it is the weakest segment as much as I liked it. So you're right. The first one would have been good with that, like, you know, the the shocking gore. Like, that was the more, I guess, serious of all the segments. Um, but it's it, it sets a tone for the movie. That hilariously doesn't remain. <laughs> That's what's great. Like. <laughs> this is my favorite segment. I, It's the goofiest. It's the one that feels most like uh, not just a, a comic, but specifically an episode of the 90s Tales from the Crypt show. Definitely. And it just drops these amazing one-liners by both of the lead actors. Oh, they're both so funny. Oh my gosh. Pleasant and um, the, the girl. Has she done anything else? Yes, the, his co-star is Samantha Egger, who plays uh, Adina Hamilton. And they're both so funny in this. And I've seen her in a few things. She's in a, another Canadian horror movie. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so we'll have to get to that. She's in David Cronenberg's The Brood. Interesting. Okay. But anyway, back to this segment. Like, the two of them are super funny. The tone of the segment is really slapsticky. Like the the scene in which uh, uh, Pleasance and Egger are chasing the cat with giant butterfly nets. <laughs> I forgot about the giant nets. It's the size of him. <laughs> <laughs> like it it 
the the movie it's funny it's like that's why i said like i say it's kind of a surprise that the movie escalates not for horror but for comedy uh, instead of say making its intentions known or placing like this lighter segment say in the middle or at the beginning it's like no 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 we're saving this one on the end always leave them laughing and it, it plays out like it is like a, an old cartoon like right down to the cat being able to read a bottle of poison as a plot point. Oh, that's the best. They just have the whole kitchen floor. There's bear traps with entire fish in them to tempt him. <laughs> and, there's, and there's mouse traps with cheese. And there's a little like raccoon catching cage with food. Like all these crazy ideas. And then one little bowl of milk that looks pretty harmless. And then the cat just looks up onto the counter and there's this vial with poison on the side. <laughs> the implication that the cat's like oh i see i see <laughs> it's so good <laughs> and there's like in addition to the absurdity of the situation like the hollywood kind of silly horror movie that they're making and like just the uh the way actors are portrayed is also being exaggerated for comedic effect like i love the idea that uh, Pleasance, who like everybody knew was a bald actor, is wearing a toupee in this. But in addition to the toupee that he's wearing that's supposed to be his character's uh, uh, toupee, the character has an additional toupee for the part he's playing in the movie. <laughs> I remember when I first started, you pointed out, you're like, oh, he's definitely wearing a toupee here because he's a bald actor. And then near the end of this segment there's a scene where he takes his wig off for the role and then he lifts up his toupee to fix it and puts it back down like they just acknowledge that he's wearing a toupee yeah the double toupee scene is one of the highlights of this segment and one of the highlights of the movie uh i i love how over the top uh that edgar and pleasance are they are they are a a you know uh, a lovey Hollywood actor equivalent of Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Adina, there's one scene when they go back to the house and she's they're they're talking about their their plot to have killed his previous wife, which is amazing to begin with, because it's that giant swinging pendulum death sequence, like classic old timey torture device that's used in I think Saw four at some point <laughs> saw four or five <laughs> i like how you went with it's definitely used in one of the saw sequels as opposed to the pit and the pendulum nobody knows about that saw four come on <laughs> this felt like an old timey saw the movie that that's within the movie yeah, exactly and it's so great because they replace the rubber pendulum he replaces the rubber pendulum with a real one nobody knows it kills the actress in the most hilarious way imaginable like one tiny uh. little cut and then later there's a detective being like well looks like the prop was replaced with the real thing the, the classic real you know medieval torture device switcheroo <laughs> and then he goes on to say continue filming it, it's fine i mean there's nothing we can do about it literally that day <laughs> he just takes it <laughs> Freak accident. The entire prop was replaced with a real torture device. When Adina is in the Iron Maiden, like the whole reason she dies is because the movie is insisting on real props 
like actual sharp spikes, an actual functioning Iron Maiden. And that's how she meets her end is that the cat blocks the back, uh, the false back of the Iron Maiden so that she could escape. I'm sorry, that Iron Maiden thing, I just have to, I just suddenly clicked into my head when Pleasant yells out because he's trying to convince her to, to act real. And he's oh, yeah. like, the spikes, they're coming for your eyes. <laughs> Get in there. Go in, go in. And this time, try to act scared. Remember, the spikes are coming for your eyes, your body. You'll scream. You sound like a mouse. And her. so good (laughs) yeah the two of them are so so funny and i can't really say this for egger but certainly for pleasance where he was really associated with the horror genre and had uh, a real fondness for like he 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 tended to stick up for a lot of the horror and cult movies that he did um i remember in one interview that he gave when asked about his career he responded i only make odd films (laughs) He was into it. And I I like the way like this seems to be (laughs) not the philandering part, at least not to my knowledge, but the kind of uh, 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 serious craftsman who goes over the top uh, seems to be like a real play on his image, like on, on who he actually was, because he could go super small and subtle, but he could also go very big. And a lot of the like crazier horror movies he did uh, definitely involved a lot of bug-eyed shouting and the occasional very weird looking wig. <laughs> um, so it felt like it felt very true to him and he was playing with his image here. And I absolutely love that he's in the Iron Maiden trying to train Adina to scream. Yes. So that we have like just an excuse to hear an actor, because of course, you know, that's where we get the moniker Scream Queen. Um, it's weird that we've never heard of anything called a Scream King, but I guess guys aren't as well known for their screaming in horror movies. Well, they should be after Donald Pleasance in this one. <laughs> now, I will show you what terror means. It's very simple. It's a fun uh, uh, reflection of who he really was. And uh, I really like that. I think that gives this segment an added bit of, I think, comedy that could have worked if they had used, like, similarly, had you had, like, Peter Cushing in this part or Vincent Price in this part, it would have been great. But I think it only, but I think Pleasance is perfect here. And I think it only would have worked or worked as well as it did if you have an actor who is associated with horror making fun of his image. Because this is Pleasance one year before Halloween. Oh, wow. Okay. One year, eh? So his arch nemesis, arch nemesis for the late 70s, Michael Myers and Cats. And best of all, the most Tales from the Crypt touch in all of this, and that's exactly what this feels like. Like, I really expected us not to go back to Peter Cushing and Ray Milland at the end, but to have the animatronic Crypt Keeper show up, uh, was the fact that it ends with a cat's got your tongue joke as as the the cat struggles to drag this, I assume, cow tongue that was acquired from a butcher shop across the set. And it's great. (laughs) 
It's great. And I love that when they cut to the um, the wraparound segment after that, he's like, well, there's no telling that it was the cat that did it. It could have been a jealous woman or an escaped maniac. <laughs> I, oh, I, I was just going to say, I do have to say that my most Tales of the Crypty moment of that episode of that scene or whatever that skit segment <laughs> what do you call it <laughs> segment segment that's the word <laughs> of that segment skit. is when um adina they're lying in bed after and she's been like trying on his ex-wife his dead wife's clothes and stuff and he says something about her like how unfortunate that she got cut in half and then adina's like mm, yes now she's just a bit player <laughs> <It's> <laughs> totally even done with the like the inflection of the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> of the three segments, which do you think is the weirdest for Peter Cushing to have any notes on? Because for me, it's got to be segment two. How would you know that this, uh, this, this house, which nobody was in except for Lucy, she uh, took her mother's book on witchcraft to shrink down the cousin who had been terrorizing her so and be reunited with a cat. Like the cat doesn't even figure into the story. So even if somehow Peter Cushing got all the information and that this story is true, the cat doesn't really figure into it. You are a hundred percent right. I didn't even think like, okay, the first, all of them are just, how would he know any of this? Like yeah. there were no, it's not like, oh, I checked the surveillance cameras in 1912 and I saw that this happened. You know, it's like, you, but I guess he could assume that the maid had locked herself in that closet because the the cat food had been eaten and stuff. So it's like, you know, a detective could be like, oh, she clear, she was stuck in here for a few days. You know, maybe she went to the washroom or something like maybe they could tell. <laughs> and even with the third one, you know, you can't tell what like a few things that were going on, but you could try to piece it together. But that second one is so isolated. It's just this little family. <laughs> And it seems like this girl killed her cousin and he just found a way to blame it on the cat. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's the only one that doesn't really line up with his view that like cats have powers and they will uh, hurt you if you cross them. Because like the first the first story and the last story involve crossed cats. But this one, even though Angela's mom tries to get rid of Wellington, Wellington just come, comes back. That's it. Like, that's that's his arc. He comes back, and then, like, he attacks the little girl when she becomes a mouse because, like, he's a cat. He's going to do it. Just a tiny thing running around. <laughs> but he doesn't even eat her. He doesn't even hurt her. She hurts no. him, and that's it. But you know what Peter Cushing is trying to say? Because <laughs> I'm assuming he just, uh, <laughs> this is the part that he assumes happened. When she goes to get the book on witchcraft, it's after Wellington comes back from being taken away to get murdered because he uh, he he accidentally fell in mud or something. So I guess that's grounds for murdering a cat. <laughs> he comes back from the uh, the SPCA or whatever, and when the little when Lucy's like, "Oh, Wellington, you're home. What what should we do about my awful cousin?" He goes over and puts his paw on the book of witchcraft, <laughs> and she's like. Oh, of course. And that's what makes her do the witchcraft. Ah, so he's very subtly guiding her along. <laughs> but I mean, how Wilbur would know this? <laughs> I'm unawares. <laughs> One 
one thing I will do is I'll, I'll do a little CanCon checklist for some noticeable things in this. So as we mentioned before, it was shot in Quebec. It was shot in Montreal. And one of the stars is John Vernon, who was born in Zinner, Saskatchewan. And he would be best known for a number of things. He was in Dirty Harry. He was in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He was the crusty Dean Wormer in Animal House, which is probably what he's best known for. And lastly, he was in the Canuxploitation slasher Curtains. The movie was also produced by Denis Haru, who is uh, Montreal-born, and he produced, among other things, the film Quest for Fire. He also produced an exploitation film called Tomorrow Never Comes, which also stars Donald Pleasance. And he produced the 80s cartoon series Mask, which I don't even know how to describe it except as a high-tech G.I. Joe ripoff. It was great. It had the best theme song (laughs) of all the 80s cartoon shows. And I know that's saying something with Jim out there, but I stand by it. I was going to ask you if you had a a moment that you would consider part of our scaredage, something that is particularly Canadian about this movie. This one's a little bit harder for me because the sets, like, they're not really recognizably Canadian, in, in my opinion. Like, there's nothing that really stands out except when the second segment rolls in and the words that pop up are Quebec province. <laughs> It's weirdly formal, but it's also like, it it seems wrong. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with saying, this is the Quebec province. It just sounds off. Like, it's like, oh, there were a lot of Brits involved in this movie. They didn't know. Yeah. They they didn't know how we say it. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure that people were like, Quebec? Quebec? What the heck is that? They're like, it's a province. It's not a state. It's a a Canada thing. It's province. (laughs) Well, we are for a tie because I wrote down the same thing. That is the most Canadian thing in the movie is just just seeing it embrace the fact that it was shot in Quebec. And then you see that big title that seems slightly off where it goes, Quebec province. Exactly. It it, it got a laugh of recognition and awkwardness out of me. (laughs) The cat is out of the bag for this episode on The Uncanny. If your heart hasn't stopped after this terrifying episode of A Part of Our Scaredage, you can find show notes for this episode at megaphonic.fm slash scare slash one. If you still have an ear for fear after The Uncanny, check out our episodes on Ginger Snaps and Curtains. Plus, if you want to discuss other scary cat movies with myself and Sarah, or recommend a movie you'd like us to tackle on this show, you can reach us at scare at megaphonic.fm. I swear, if enough people want us to do The Peanut Butter Solution or The Adventure of Faustus Bedgood, Sarah and I just might do it. But for now, this is Adam Clark, signing off. This is Sarah Chamberlain. Goodbye. And remember to spay or neuter your cats, or they'll kill you. (laughs) 